Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Honey and Co. It's with me, Sarit Packer. We hold the talks in our deli, Honey and Spice, in front of a small audience. We ask the people we admire from the world of food to come over. Cooks, waiters, makers, writers, drinkers and thinkers. We have something to eat, a glass of wine, and they tell us about making their life in food. Today we're joined by the wonderful Mark Ogas from Monty's Deli, and he's going to tell us a story of how he started from a small market stand and developed into a proper restaurant in Hoxton in London. They do amazing Jewish deli kind of food, and it really connects me to my roots, and I think for him it's also a connection to his roots. So listen and hope you enjoy. Today we have Mark Ogas, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from Monty's Deli. I don't know if you know, but Mark and Owen had a market stall. Yeah, on Druid Street. Druid Street. 2012 you started? Like well, that? I started by myself in 2013, and then Owen joined around 2014, 15. Yeah. So from a market stall, and now six months ago you opened a we restaurant. We opened our first restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Where is that? On Hoxton Street, right. 227 to 229. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. <Come> visit. <laughs> yeah. And it's a Jewish deli. Yeah. Um, well, I love Jewish delis and I've always bemoaned the lack of a really good one in the UK. And we, certainly I always felt that although the, perhaps that style of Jewish food isn't as present in British culture as it is in American culture or certainly not to the same extent that London was really crying out for some sort of representation of that so um, we tried to do it with a combination of um, determination and humor and you know try to make it fun and, and also but the most important thing is that we wanted to be responsible for making all of the products because we felt like the greatest places always have that enigma about them about what their recipes are, how they make their salt beef or corned beef, as they call it in the US, and, and pastrami. And we wanted to try and emulate some of that mystery and, and some of that kind of excitement. So, um, yeah. And this, this is food you grew up eating or it's this fantasy of the American? No, no, I grew up, I grew up eating 
salt beef and, and learned a lot about salt beef from my grandfather, Monty, who the deli is named after. Um, but as I got older and was lucky enough to travel to the US and visit places like Katz's or um, Milan Deli in, in New York or um, Nate and Al's or Langer's Deli in Los Angeles, I sort of learned a lot more about what delis mean to their communities, what the food is, how it's served over there, kind of plentiful and kind of much different to the kind of British stiff upper lip kind of service. I think in the UK people think of salt beef and certainly in London they think of the brass rail in Selfridges and uh, the bagel shop in Brick Lane. But what a lot of people don't know is that both those businesses buy their salt beef ready-made from a company called Henson's and it's the same product but in Selfridges you're paying 15, 16 quid and in the bagel shop you're kind of paying what it's worth which is about £3.50. <laughs> um, and the idea for us was to try and bring salt beef well certainly work on the idea that you know what salt beef really became popular for in the UK was that it was fatty that it was kind of more Hamisher which I I always think of as just kind of much more handmade and and less concerned about necessarily the appearance or the kind of taboo of fat you know it seems like fat on meat certainly on salt beef had become a bit of a taboo and for me that's where all the flavour is so wanted to bring some of that back into the product into the product and what kind of food did you grow up on you grew up in a jewish home yes north london nice north london jewish boy and uh <laughs> um yeah we grew up on all sorts of foods i mean my mum's a great cook um she never made salt beef but uh we had many a shabbat dinner and um that's another thing that we introduced in the restaurant is we have a shabbat dinner where you can pre-order a whole chicken for the table and it's a four course meal actually we, we bake the the challah rolls and it comes with chopped liver to start and a little bit of palwin's kiddish wine and then uh and then there's chicken soup with matzo balls and noodles for the table and then a whole chicken with the potatoes and we actually give it to the um to the people with a on a chopping board with a knife and a carving fork so they can kind of help themselves as if they're like a kind of family around the table and uh, i feel like maybe that was something of a more I mean, I've never experienced a Shabbat in America, but like in my family, Shabbat was like the focal point of every week. And I wanted to bring some of that kind of some of that feeling into a restaurant. I thought it'd be quite an interesting idea to see how people approach it. And it, it, it seems to be something that a lot of customers enjoy. You're getting a bit ahead of yourself because yeah. I want to go okay. a bit further back. I want to this <clears throat> aspect of a, of a food stall and a market. Mm. And how do you start? What do you do? You say, OK, I'm taking this food stall I'm going to take this leap of faith I'm going to make it's salt beef a, like what how does that happen it's quite a long boring story so I don't know how far back <laughs> to go um I was in a band for a long time and uh and we assigned to a label and when we got dropped I was kind of uh I was at a bit of a crossroads so I had to find something else some other focus uh something else that I was passionate about other than music and all I could think about was food <laughs> uh and Jewish food specifically, I guess, because it's something that I feel connected to. I, I felt like I needed to get some experience working in, in, in the industry first. So I took a job as a commie chef on the kind of bottom rung of the ladder in, in a very busy Soho restaurant. And I worked there for six months and it was, um, it was probably the most hellish six months of my life. But it taught me a lot of disciplines and, and uh, for all the negative aspects of working there, I felt like I really learned um, what the preparation of food was about and the disciplines and after leaving there I, I had a, 
a more solidified version in my mind of what it was I wanted to do because and it was very simple it was just I felt like in in London I didn't think that salt beef was very good and I wanted to make a better salt beef I felt like I knew I could do that but also pastrami was almost non-existent so I thought if I could do a kind of little street food kind of version of that and create the stuff myself and kind of refine it that that would be a good base to build this idea from I hadn't really thought of it much clearer than that I bought a smoker and um, I just started experimenting making pastrami curing meat and luckily I had some gullible friends who were happy to (laughs) try some of those experiments and then as it got better I took a stall I managed to get invited to a stall on Maltby Street Market which was kind of just a growing thing at the time it was very very cheap it was like 35 quid for a Saturday to just pitch up and, and make some sandwiches. Of in yeah. now, in now, kind now of I mean, terms. now they charge a 20% turnover rent yeah. to, you know, whatever you're selling. It's a, a different world, the whole food market. It now. is, yeah. But I used to, and I had this crazy schedule where I would be like making chicken soup in my flat. I'd be curing meat at a kitchen in Bermondsey. Then I'd be taking some of it back to my parents' house out in the suburbs so that I could smoke it. And then I'd be driving all over the place with like, you know a car full of pastrami or sweating in the back of the car and I'd get it back to my flat and I had this huge 200 quid Argos fridge that I'd stuck behind the door in this, in our tiny flat where I'd store everything and uh, it was all perfectly above board then <laughs> and um, and then I would take it to the market stall I'd get up at about sort of 5.30 pack everything up and get down to the market stall and there'd be days where there wasn't coleslaw or soup because I'd slipped on the stairs on the way down and I had like chicken soup all over my trousers, you know. But it was that was kind of part of the sort of I don't know. It was I I always felt determined that it was moving towards something because it, it was already building up interest and we had big queues, and I was just doing everything myself. You know, I was kind of putting the music on, making the signs, uh, carving the sandwiches, taking the money. It was a very kind of hectic kind of period of time. And you got uh, to a lot of queues. People were waiting for an hour yeah, for a sandwich. Yeah, partially because they really wanted one and partially because it was just really slow service. <laughs> <laughs> and what's changed from then to now? In how you Was that the same salt beef recipe that you use yeah, now? Yeah, exactly the same. But I think what changed was around 2013, somebody came to, to do some research for a Tom Kerridge TV show and they wanted to feature us as this part of this piece he's doing about salt beef. I remember that. And um, we got featured and then it just kind of, from already being quite a popular market store, it became unmanageable. So I was desperately looking for somebody who could help me and, and also somebody who would, I'd be able to kind of show how to make a sandwich and then just leave them to do it, which is, and I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, so that was quite a task but a mutual friend of mine and Owen's had put a post up on Instagram of Owen making pastrami and I just flippantly commented you know does he want a job it looks alright and he got in touch and then everything kind of changed from that point because being able to defer some of the responsibilities to someone that you can trust in a, in a business of that size is is so massive because we were under a lot of pressure every weekend and there was more and more people coming with expectations And, um, yeah, we started to kind of work together. Then this opportunity came up to take a kind of larger uh, railway arch in Bermondsey, which we moved into, and we were sharing it with two other businesses, but we had the arch to ourselves on the weekend to trade from. And Owen was able to... Owen is a fantastic self-taught cook, and he was able to expand the menu. You know, I wanted to do bagels. He just started making bagels. He, He really worked hard and researched heavily, you know, how to make bagels, what the process is, you know, what, how long they should be proved for, you know, what 
what really changes the flavour and texture and, and, and what makes an authentic bagel. And he is very, very determined and, and specific about how to follow recipes and how to kind of improve on things. So it was a good partnership, really. And the business just started to grow. And this had proper tables, like people could sit yeah, down we and had, eat. It wasn't... There were trestle tables, but yeah, yeah there were tables. Table. It was there. like kind of a wind <laughs> tunnel because we. it was one of those long railway arches. There was an exit at one end and a huge shutter at the other end that was up to the top. So wind would just rush through there and customers would come in and out either end we had no idea where they were coming from but in the middle we had a table where we were slicing sandwiches and there's trestle tables on the side people would get a little raffle ticket and hopefully the right sandwich would go out with that raffle ticket and um yeah we had a good thing going we knew that it was building and it was kind of an exciting time for us because it wasn't i mean for me specifically it was like suddenly i wasn't driving around all over london making all these different things and bringing it to one place i had i had somebody else and we were producing centrally and but this was just a weekend market yeah so we were there during the week producing yeah. making as much salt beef as we could and making all the um sides and breads etc and then we would just try and sell it all on the weekend yeah but then you make this huge leap of deciding to take a restaurant that's open every day that yeah. you don't have the five days to produce and the two days to sell so tell us a bit about that journey how does that happen I've no idea. I haven't had a chance to think about it yet. <laughs> so let's, we'll, we'll kill that um, subject. <laughs> how did it happen? Well, I think, first of all, I'd say that that was always my intention to get into a restaurant. I'd never been, like, I, I never wanted to be trading outside for the future of Monty's Deli because I think that there's too many difficult variables about being an outside trader. You're so reliant on the weather and you know, whether the electricity is going to be enough that day to carry the voltage for all the equipment you need and, and the cost. And I felt like the future of Monty's, if it, if it had a future, it had to get into a place and be this established Jewish deli in London. That was always my intention. We spent a long time thinking about how we could do it. Um, and you started a campaign, a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, I mean, that was part of it. But I mean, the the actual process from the Kickstarter was a ended up being a very small fraction of what we actually had to raise to... So how else did you raise? Because this whole aspect of, of setting a business yeah. without anything is something that I'm familiar with, but also we started much smaller than what you've done. What you've done is... Yeah, well, we had to kind of go cap in hand to uh, family and friends. And then we were lucky enough to meet um, uh, Josh and Paul Katz, who are the brothers behind uh, Berber and Q, which is another restaurant fantastic restaurant in Haggerston and they were really interested in what we were doing and we met with them and talked about raising money for the project um, they put together a group of investors and um, and we met with a couple of extra people and eventually put together a, a kind of small group that were able to give us the money that we needed but we still had to borrow loads from the bank you know, it wasn't. We're not talking about like vast sums of money from individual people. We had to, we had to kind of really scrape and. It so was the a Kickstarter was to to top this up. So the Kickstarter to... was basically we we knew that we had we needed to raise around fifty thousand pounds for all the kitchen equipment we needed, and we thought if we could just specifically uh, box that off for what we'd raise from the Kickstarter, then it would be a great way to engage our people that were interested in what we were doing, in what you know in the project. And also then be able to focus on how much we needed to raise to, to actually to build it. the place. And it, it was a successful campaign. I mean, you yeah. raised it 
quite quickly as well. Well, the I mean, the, you set a target of four weeks, so that's what it has to happen in. Yeah. Whether it happens no, but it or happens. So it sometimes happens, they don't but it happen. happened right at the end. I was sweating. <laughs> yeah, just waiting to see if it all goes. Yeah, through. because it kind of with the Kickstarter campaign, you a lot of people put money in the beginning, and then you have two two and a half weeks where you're just tearing your hair out, kind of don't think you're going to make it, and you're worried about how you are going to raise that money if it falls through. And then right at the end, you kind of have that kind of little burst. But it's, um, it's, it's a very hairy experience, not one that I want to do again <laughs> anytime soon. Um, I, I think it's quite an interesting thing for, for people that are starting out because it gives you some kind of way to, to get people interested. But how, what did you do? How did you approach people? How did you start the campaign about it? Just social media? Or? Uh, well, you have a page on the site that you make a video for. You tell everybody what your, what your plans are, what you're trying to raise money for. And you put together a package, various different packages of differing values of money that you're trying to raise. So that can be anything from a year's worth of bagels um, to uh, just a t-shirt or a little pin badge. And um, But yeah, it was amazing. Kickstarter was a really brilliant way of like trying to show people what we were all about being able to kind of engage I mean what one of the things that's been amazing about having that as part of our process is that once we open the restaurant we have a kind of database of nearly 800 people that we can kind of send messages out to like for example one of the things that we found that was weird about when we opened the restaurant is that the Saturday brunch service would be absolutely packed and then in the evening there'd be hardly you know initially we had trouble filling up the evening so then I introduced a kind of uh, um, an offer for Kickstarter backers only where it would be 20% off for them to come in the evening 20% off their bill they come in and bring some friends and then suddenly we had like larger parties coming in and then it meant people walking by would see that and it created a really great atmosphere so that's just one I you know one element of the way that Kickstarter has, has benefited us. And what's the one really good thing and the one really, really bad thing about this kind of experience of changing to a restaurant? Uh, the really good thing is that I got to design the restaurant of my dreams. So um, one of the things, we took the place and it had these incredible Victorian tiles and floor from when it was a butcher's back in the Victorian era and there's just so much history in the walls and the floor that it, it already meant that opening a new place it had a kind of a character already to it and there's a kind of there's a kind of connection to the history of the east end which obviously is is so big a part of you know my grandfather monty was born in the east end and as was mine by the way oh, with right, the same cool. name really <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> don't think we're related we should swap leases yeah. <laughs> the worst thing I, mean, I don't know if this is the worst thing i, I think certainly it's been a big education for me shifting my role from making stuff exactly to my specification and, and, and cutting sandwiches that I know are going out perfect because obviously I've done them to <laughs> kind of deferring that responsibility to people and, and trusting in them to do that and that took a, a quite quite a lot to uh, to get used to and I think also it's such a massive achievement to go from um, you know like I said, carrying two buckets of coleslaw and, and, and soup and spilling it all over my trousers to so like walking into my restaurant in the morning and it's like, this is my place. But I've never had the chance to actually sit back and enjoy that because I'm still scrabbling around in the coleslaw as far as <laughs> metaphorically speaking. I've still got chicken soup all over my trousers. So like, you know, the, the, the responsibilities and the stresses of running a restaurant don't 
allow you to sort of actually enjoy it at any point. But I'm hoping that, you know, in a year or two years' time, that, that will change. Yeah, maybe not at the start. Later yeah. on, you, you see that a bit. You've kind of answered my next question, which was, what is your position in the company now? Are you still making everything? But you've just answered that. So I'm not asking okay. it again. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> uh, tell me about the specialties, the food, and mm. a bit about the process of making, because salt beef and... and Smoked, um, not corned beef, the other one. Pastrami. Pastrami. Yeah. They take time. What's the process? They do. Well, the way that we do it is we mix um, curing salt with all the spices and sugar. And we, we dry cure, so that means we rub the salt and spices and sugar directly into the meat. Um, and then we vacuum seal it. So we have a bag of maybe six joints that have all been rubbed by hand with our special recipe. And the thing about vacuum sealing is it, is it kind of locks all the salt in around the meat. You turn the bag over daily, and that means that there's enough time for all of those salts and spices and garlic, etc., to penetrate the meat. The curing salt is what makes the meat pink when you cook it, and that kills all of the bacteria. So curing is, you know, it's like an ancient tradition, really. In, in ancient times, people would rub the salt on and then put it between two heavy stones you know that and, and I guess um, salt beef is a continuation of that tradition um, the way that we the process that we do with, that we put the meat through after that is that we take it out of its bag after about six days and desalinate it in water that soaks out the excess salt and then enables the meat to kind of I mean, it gives the meat so much more flavor when you take the excess salt out, and it also makes the meat more tender when you cook it. If you have too much salt in the meat, it will just be kind of rubbery and hard. So no matter how much you've cured it, there's still quite a lot of work to do to make sure that you still have a tender, fatty piece of meat at the end of that process. Um, so after the desalination, if it's pastrami, then we take the meat and we, uh, we rub it with a spice blend of black pepper and coriander seeds and other, other secret ingredients <laughs> and then we leave it in the fridge open for the uh, a pellicle to uh, form on the surface the pellicle is the sticky surface on the meat so that as it dries when you put it in the smoker and you're putting kind of oak logs in the smoker you want the smoke to adhere to the surface of the meat but if you put a piece in wet where you've just rubbed with spices none of that smoke will attach so it means that you're just basically cooking it without any of that extra flavour the smoke is so vital to the flavour of pastrami and and such a big reason why we wanted to make pastrami in the first place. So we take that very seriously. So we put it on drying racks, and that will sit there for several hours until it's ready to be, or even overnight. 
so that when it's smoked the next day you get some of that hit of the oak smoke, the pepper and then the fatty uh, beef. And then salt beef is a, a, a much simpler process but no less important. The way that we do it is we, uh, we steam it for several hours. Uh, so after the curing process, instead of the pastrami being treated separately and rubbed, this is basically just a very slow steaming process to kind of break down some of that connective tissue and sinew so that you just have just a lovely kind of soft joint that you don't want it to collapse. You want the pieces to hold together, but you want uh, you still need a kind of firmness. You, you need it to kind of have a bite. So that's that's a very kind of rough explanation of... Oh, it's a, for me, a quite a new method of doing it, actually, because right. my mum's traditional is like in a brine and, yeah. you, you know, turning it, uh, like I remember this, hunks of meat sitting yeah, in a brine ways. and like there's Absolutely. quite a lot of different ways. Brine. You can do it in a wet brine and you can, you can cook it in, in a pot of water. I mean, if you're making it at home, that's probably a better way of doing it because you don't need such specific equipment, yeah. you know, you can, yeah, you can... It's, it's, yeah, it's much easier to do it that way at home, definitely. This is how, the only way I didn't know there was a different way, you see. Uh, other special things on your menu, Jewish things? Uh, well, obviously the chicken soup is very important. Chopped liver, I'm really proud of the chopped liver because we, because we make the chicken soup fresh from scratch every day. We have this delicious build-up of schmaltz on the top, which is the golden chicken fat. So what we do for the chopped liver is we, um, we confit the onions in the schmaltz for hours with salt and just break it right down it's very healthy then food, we sear the yeah <laughs> then we sear the chicken livers and then we drop that into the onion mix let it cook for a long time and then and then just break it up blend it and uh let it cool and then we serve it with some grated boiled egg on top some parsley and a couple of slices of toasted collar which we also make in-house as well which is very tasty because i had it the other day yeah it's it's a really great dish so things like that you know crane we make we make our own mustard don't we make just say crane most of them don't have an idea okay, what crane is yeah <laughs> the whole point crane. of this is a okay yeah food. <laughs> so crane is um is a beetroot and horseradish <laughs> condiment that's often had with white fish like filter fish which is like fish balls or white meat it's kind of like a beetroot mustard it gets right up your nose but it has a really great flavor and excellent to mix into mashed potatoes right so we do a smoked turkey sandwich we smoke a whole we smoke several massive turkey breasts in our smoker and then the sandwich we make is the sliced turkey and then a, a, a generous helping of crane on the top and then some coleslaw and i think there's a couple of them Somewhere there. Sitting over there. In People are going to get hungry, yeah. Does anyone have questions? Crane. It's C-H-R-A-I-N. Um, do you have the feeling that you're selling something in addition to food? And do people come to you and say, I'm here because of this is what I have as a child of my parent. My grandmother made this. Much better than <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I, it never fails to amaze me what sort of emotive reaction the food this food has among our customers. People really want to talk about those experiences, and I really want to hear them. I, you know, when when I was working as a commie in this kitchen, there was no windows, and it was hot and it was a sweaty environment, and I didn't really get to talk to anybody. The great thing about doing the market store was that interaction with the customer, and I still am lucky enough to have that now. People want to tell me stories about when their father took them to Blooms in the 60s, or when they've been to the Brass Rail, or 
you know, the soup or the chopped liver their grandmother made. And uh, I love all of those stories because, I mean, I grew up around those stories. And I think for some people that is a really important part of it. I also think that it's impossible to please a lot of those people <laughs> because, uh, you know, they, you're making it, you're, you're essentially making something that they already have a very fixed idea about what it is. But when you do please those people, it's like double the satisfaction. So I love that. I love that challenge. You know, there's something about, as Jewish people, we want to challenge each other on, you know, what the food is and stuff. And, and, and I enjoy that. And I enjoy trying to meet that challenge as well. Right. Um, so my grand um, always used to make chocolate butter. Yeah. And she always used to put a hard-boiled egg in it. So right. Yeah, my mum does that as well, but I I like it I like it on the top because I think it looks nicer. Because <laughs> I think chopped liver has a stigma to it. Like selling having chopped liver at home or having chopped liver in a restaurant is like two different things. So if someone brings you chopped liver and it's just like a, a brown lumpy mess on a plate, it's kind of like you need to sort of jazz it up somehow. But I I actually I prefer it not having I prefer the texture being consistent and having the egg on the top. But like I said, it's it, that's how it, that's how it works. This kind of food is everybody, you know, loves the food they they grew up on. I guess the challenge is trying to kind of meet that expectation without sacrificing what it is to go out and eat as well and 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 give people that sort of experience too. But yeah, I like it both ways. <laughs> Yeah, I did want to do a Hellsel stuffing in the chicken neck. I've actually never had that. So, I don't uh, know what that is. Absolutely the best thing ever. Yeah. There's various things like um, we've just started pickling herring and, you know, we, we're going to start sort of doing some more fish-oriented dishes. And um, gefilte fish is always something that has kind of fascinated me because as a kid I was horrified by it. My gran used to make it sort of days in advance and it would be fully oxidized by the time we would come to visit her with a sort of horrible looking bit of carrot on the top and stuff and I always thought like if you could do a place that did really good gefilte fish you'd be like a genius and every Jew in London would flock to you to eat it there's things that there's always things I mean putting together a menu is so hard because there's so many things that you want to do but actually you realize what kind of strain that puts the kitchen under you know even something as basic as latkes is so labor intensive that it takes it's the the actual raw materials aren't expensive but the the labor costs in making them is crazy so it's always about balancing what you want to do and what's feasible you know and i think those are the kind of things that as we become more established and more you know things become a little bit easier in terms of management that we can start to push the menu forward in those other directions what's what have we done in the sort of dessert thing dessert so yeah, we do lakshan pudding, although I feel like that needs a lot of work. I'm not happy with the lakshan pudding at the moment. But we do that. We do um, chocolate babka, do uh, amazing cheesecake, which I, there's some here some. somewhere. And uh, I've gone blank. Oh, blintzes. We do these delicious blintzes, which come with a little grape compote on the top. And uh, they go down very well. Do you pour in your bags? We do, yeah, yeah. There's different ways of making bagels. Like there's a Montreal, there's a kind of Montreal-style bagel, which is um, it's kind of flatter, larger, sweeter. They boil it in water with honey. They put the honey in the water, and then they bake it in a wood-fired oven. 
And some people say that it's the they put the seeds all over the bagel, which is what makes it the Montreal bagel. We do that as well. We cover the bagels in seeds when we do the poppy seeds or the sesame seeds. But um, yeah, we ours is much more of a kind of uh, I guess a traditional British bagel where it's kind of it's proof for two days. It's boiled in water, it's baked, and that's it. You know, we don't do much more to it. It's kind of very simple. We actually bake them on. Um, one of the things that we do do, which is a traditional method, is we have these cedar planks, which we have uh, hessian on top of. And then you, once you take the bagel out of the water, you put it onto the board, which will be wet, and it goes into the oven. And as the bagel starts to expand, you flip the board so the bagels go onto the baking tray at the bottom, and then they continue baking there. But the idea of that is to give it an even all-round bake rather than them sort of being more baked on one side than the other. No, I mean, ultimately, anybody can make salt beef and pastrami. I think that the, you know, the quality of it is going to vary. And so, obviously, I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't advertise exactly what our methods or recipes are. I think, I think if it becomes a popular product and lots more places are making it, that will just be a bigger challenge for us to kind of try and be the quintessential version. But it's an interesting question because also with the space when we took it, I mean, I, I really wanted to try and make it something that wouldn't be easily copied. So I made loads of artwork for the space that hangs in various places. One of the advantages of taking over an old established bakery, which is what the building was for 40 years before we moved in, is there's all this cool old equipment there. There was this incredible huge old kneading table that's a steel kneading table that looks like a mountain range because it's been bread or dough has been bashed on it for so many years and so I thought that would make a great bagel sign so I just painted bagels and that and stuck it above where all the bagels are hanging and because Monty's is all about handmade and, and being able to kind of control all the methods and, uh, and manipulations of making all these products that if I could make as much of the environment by hand as possible then it would almost be an unimitable imitable space so so the idea was to kind of give it that individuality so it is something that I suppose is always in the back of your mind as a restaurant because you're trying to do something and it's a specific idea and someone else can have that specific idea and come and see your place and try and do it so yeah I guess that's part of it for us as well is like that the handmade element being in control of as much of the production of all these different things as possible gives you that individuality and I think that's a nice experience for people who like going to restaurants and are maybe sick of seeing the same thing all the time good tell us what you bought well, I can't see but I think so there's some smoked turkey grain and coleslaw sandwiches mm-hmm. there's a salt beef mench which is just a classic salt beef and mustard and rye bread some pastrami rubins and salt beef rubins then we got some bagels over there and we bake the bagels in house there's an egg and onion and chopped liver and smoked salmon there's two smelly bowls of sauerkraut that we make also <laughs> that are covered in cling film and there's some cheesecake as well which is your favourite? Um, <laughs> it's impossible to say really I like them all I guess um, I'm, I'm a sucker for the turkey but I've eaten a lot of salt beef and pastrami in my time so <laughs> it's a nice change for me Yeah, but all the bagels are delicious as well they're, they're really great Like they're hand rolled they're proved for two days they have a little kind of 
in the baking process they get these little blisters on the top which give them an extra crunch and chew and yeah it's all good nice thank you so much unless anyone has any more questions I'm going to let you eat because I can smell it I want to try something thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That would be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.